knowing what you specifically value. And what I mean by that is you, not what your friends value or your family values, what the media is telling you to value. And if you can spend your money aligned with those values, you are always going to feel like you have enough. I'm Nina. And I'm Liz. We don't have all the answers, but we do have a bottle of wine and some thoughts. If you're looking for honest musings on life, happiness, health, and wellness, you've come to the right place. We'll even throw in a couple off-the-wall jokes, some personal stories, and of course, some shenanigans. So grab a glass of wine and join the conversation. Hey, Wine and Shiners, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today, we are talking with the broke millennial, Aaron Lowry, who has a blog on personal finance specifically for many of our listeners are in the millennial age group. And contrary to what society tells us, we're not all lazy and entitled and just trying to YOLO our way through life. Um, So we talk a lot about topics today in this particular episode that we've wanted to talk about for a long time because I think personally for me, financial health is really a huge part of my overall wellness. Mm -hmm. We talk about how it relates to stress later on in the episode, but I know that if I'm worried about money and budgeting and affording groceries, because we've talked before about what a pain that is, (laughs) um, you know, I can't be my best self when I have that kind of stress on me. So Erin does a really awesome job outlining some strategies that are really easy to implement. And we're all about easy, simple habits that you can put to use tomorrow. So we're also all about balance. And when we were trying to think of new topics for the podcast, it was like, well, of course, financial wellness goes into a balanced lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I know that the topic can seem taboo, but it's something that I think we all really need to talk about. And I think it's an element of our lifestyle that really brings us in alignment and helps us like even out our stress levels. Definitely. Absolutely. So we're going to chat money. And despite what your mom told you about don't ask this or, you know, don't inquire about that. We're going to ask it. We're putting it out there with Aaron today. We even talk about death. We do. (laughs) (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. So just wait for it. (laughs) But finances after death, they still, they're they're there. there. (laughs) And I got to learn about it at some point. So why not today? Um, But before we hop into the episode, we do want to touch on our amazing sponsor, Care of Vitamins. I actually just got an email that my vitamins are shipped. I bet you they're sitting in my mailbox right now. You know what? I'm actually... I need to go check. I'm going to my old apartment complex because I gave them... I moved, obviously, listeners, you know this. And I gave them my old address. And I'm like... I've waited so long and they're going to be sitting at my old address and I'm not going to get them. I'm very upset and worried about it. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to take my vitamins. Does that sound nerdy? No, but I have four or five, I cannot remember, coming in the little happy packets with my name on Mm -hmm. them. And I just love that I know that they are coming from a good source. I know that they are picked to nourish my body and the needs of my body. And I really highly recommend Care Of. If you guys hop onto their website, you can order your vitamins and get 50% off your first month's order using the code SHINE. And if you do so, hit us up and let us know. And when you get your vitamins, let us know how you feel. Definitely. So that's takecareof.com. Take their little quiz. You know, people don't think 
food, you think about that being sourced and where it comes from. We're all into knowing kind of the origins of where things originate that we're putting in our body. But people just willy-nilly take the vitamin they get at the local Walmart. And And it applies to those too. It applies to your vitamins too. Right. So get a good quality product, get care of, and get half off. And we highly recommend. Definitely. So we don't have wine today. (laughs) We're actually, I think, Nina, I think we need to be the tea and shine. I know. Podcast. Maybe we should be tea and shine. We are drinking lavender stress reducing tea. We actually just got back from our amazing live podcast event yes. at the Wonder Jam with Katie Dilbout, Simi Bodich, and Taylor Riggs. It was such a blast. And actually, this episode is airing the week after. So you guys have already heard the episode. Yeah. But that's what we were doing today. So we had a glass of wine while we were there. And I'll tell you what. If you ever feel like nervous about something, because honestly, this is the first live event that Nina and I have done. Mm -hmm. We kind of didn't know what to expect. Obviously, the people at the Wonder Jam were awesome at facilitating it. We had this wonderful team that really was our tribe of making this a success. But we were nervous. Mm -hmm. I was. Starting off with a meditation, Teresa, Mm -hmm. Peace Love Whole Foods on Instagram, find her. She's wonderful and special and great. But that really just put me in... I should, we should meditate before every recording. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I was so zen. The meditation was wonderful. And of course, we each had a glass of wine. So that kicked in and helped a little bit too. Right. So technically, this is wine and shine, but just the wine was earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the tea is now. Yeah, because it's bedtime. Also, guys, if you want, that live video is up on Facebook mm-hmm. and it will be up on YouTube as well. So you can catch it there if you were not able to make it. Definitely. Well, without further ado, Nina's favorite little without little quote, further ado, let's get into our interview with the broke millennial. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and we're really, really excited to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, tell us about your journeys. Where does your passion for helping people better understand money come from? Was there something growing up that happened that kind of kickstarted it for you? My origin story, as I call it, like I'm some sort of mythical personal finance <laughs> superhero, is um, it has to do with Krispy Kreme donuts. And if you've, if any of your listeners have ever heard of me or started reading the book or heard me talk before, they may have heard this story. I think I've, I read it on the website. It's yeah. a good story. <laughs> um, so the shortest version is in the summer of 1996, I was seven years old and my parents were really big about not handing me or my little sister money. We had to earn it. And obviously, when you're seven, you have very limited earning potential. Right. So one of the (laughs) things that I strategized was that my mom was having a yard sale. And I figured that if I sold Krispy Kreme donuts, people would buy them from me and my little sister. And so I asked my dad if he would back me and give me the money to buy the donuts up front and obviously go drive and pick them up because Mm -hmm. I was seven. (laughs) Right. And then he agreed And I set up this little Fisher Price table and my sister and I sold out the donuts very quickly. And so at the end of it, I'm sitting there with something like $20 worth in quarters. And I was super excited because I was thinking, I'm going to go to Toys R Us and I'm going to be able to buy two Nerf gun super soakers. And it's going to be the best. (laughs) Priorities. Yeah. When you're seven. (laughs) Right. Like I knew what I wanted to buy. I had my values and it was going to be great. And then my dad came over and he looked at the pile of quarters and he said, well, it cost me $8 to buy you the donuts and your sister worked for you for a little bit. So let's pay her $2. So your net profit is $10. And then he didn't just say it, he took it. Yeah. So he left me with $10 in quarters. And that was my first experience with money and also kind of learning that life wasn't totally fair. Mm -hmm. And 
it was such an interesting moment because it really kind of coded this relationship to finance at a very young age that things were not always as they seemed. And then throughout my life, my parents did a very great job of teaching me about how money worked. And a lot of it was through, I would say, school of hard knocks. It was a lot of making sure that we weren't handed anything. We had to earn things, extended all the way through paying for college, where my parents didn't pay for, I mean, I think it's important to note financially, they were capable of paying the full bill if they chose to, but they wanted us to have skin in the game, as my dad says. So my sister and I both had to pay for 50% of our college educations. And both of us ended up picking where we got scholarship money so that we could both come out debt-free. But my kind of passion to get back to your original question is that I've gone through, especially early in my life, I went through a lot of not earning much money. You know, I lived in New York City, still do, but my first year living in New York City, I was earning about $23,000, which is not a lot of money here. For reference mm-hmm. point, the, the poverty line is 19000 And the thing was, I, I felt okay. And I felt okay because I understood how to control money. And, you know, what you grow up around is normal. And so I had been under the impression that most people understood how money worked because that's my interpretation of finance. Mm -hmm. And it was obviously as I was getting into the real world and I started realizing like, nope, that's not true. And I started to see how many of my friends and even friends who came from families of comfortable means, who didn't have debt, who had relatively good jobs, we're still crazy stressed about money. And it was so mind-blowing to me that people who were even in a good scenario didn't want to talk about, didn't want to handle finances. So that's when I realized I want to do something to change this. That's awesome. That's so great. And actually, that leads us right into our next question that we had. And that was like, the topic of money seems to be really taboo to a lot of people. And why do you think people are so hesitant to talk about it? So much about money is wrapped up in what can become judgments. Mm. And it's everything from debt to your salary. It becomes so easy for us to assume that other people are going to pass judgment or other people do pass judgment on us based on things like, do you have credit card debt? How much money do you have saved? How much are you earning? And I think we get so defensive of these things because it's much more of a judgment-based scenario, then, I mean, we've even broken down the barrier of talking about sex. It's amazing that if you go up to someone and ask them how many sexual partners they've had or what was the last position they were in, (laughs) they're more willing to answer that question (laughs) Mm -hmm. than to say how much money they have in the bank account or what their debt burden is. That is mind-blowing to me. I think it's interesting that I kind of think that might be because if you think about like comparison, it's really easy to compare money because it's just a more or less situation. Like either you have more or less than a certain amount and people, there's like always a point of reference. Whereas like if you're comparing, let's say, you know, body image or other things that that are subjective, there's not that same like concrete, like, oh, I make more. Oh, you make less. Oh, you have more in savings. Like you can, there are hard numbers to it. Well, I was just going to say, if you like somebody makes more, that's good. Somebody makes less, that's bad. Somebody has more debt, that's bad. Somebody has less debt, that's good. So it's like very black and white, mm-hmm. it seems. Yeah. 
And a lot of us are taught from a young age that it's inappropriate to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the bigger issue as well is how many people listening to this right now at some point as a child asked mom and dad, how much do you make? And mom and dad said, that's not your business. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Or how many times were you told it's rude to ask somebody about their finances or, you know, you might've felt some sort of you might have had an emotional reaction to the way you were dressed compared to your friends or the toys you had compared to your friends, mm-hmm. whether that was you had more or you had less. But it's those early experiences are really coded into our brains and get carried into adulthood in our relationship with money. Definitely. Well, I say kudos to broke millennial parents. Like that yeah. parenting goals when I heard that story. Like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Do you think then you didn't have those sort of black and white? thought processes around money. Like you said, you had $23,000 a year when you were living in New York, but you weren't stressed about it. So how, how was your thought process different? You just felt you could control it. You just knew how to understand it. And that was where you came from. I knew how to live below my means. Mm-hmm. And that was key. And when you're making $23,000, you don't really have a choice but to live below or to incur debt. And my goal was to never carry debt. Yeah. And I think a big part of it There's a few things about nature versus nurture with me as well. I'm a natural saver. My parents were relatively frugal people, but they mirrored behavior that was to spend on what you value. And even as a kid, my parents were very ruthless in prioritizing their spending patterns to be on things like travel. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a lot of stuff. My parents weren't out. I, you know, I don't have memories of my mom coming home with shopping bags of clothes or my dad buying the latest tech gadgets if we want to kind of feed into gender stereotypes. Right. But I have no memories of that. I, I remember taking very nice vacations because that's what they chose to spend their money on. So it was being mirrored to me at a very young age. Hey, you're always going to feel good about how much you have if you're putting it towards what you personally value. And so even when I wasn't making much money, I was still putting it only towards the things that I really wanted to do. Now, part of that came at the consequence of saying no to a lot of things and having to say no to friends a fair amount, which, you know, I have mixed feelings about to this day because there are some friendships that I wasn't able to nurture quite to the same degree because I said no so many times, you know, and people don't like rejection. You say no enough times, people stop asking. But as I started to earn more money, I continued to live aggressively below my means. Now, I'm not still doing some of the very crazy things I did in year one. You know, looking back at it, I didn't feel deprived at the time. But for example, one of my three jobs when I first lived in New York City was working as a Starbucks barista. And I realized that they were throwing out a lot of food at the end of the day. So I asked the manager one night when I was closing, like, hey, instead of throwing out this food that's past sell date that's still perfectly legitimately <laughs> eatable. <laughs> Could I just take it home? And she was like, yeah, I don't care. So <laughs> that was me I at Panera. Bringing yeah. Tote bags. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bring in tote bags and stuff my bags full of these like paninis and the yeah. bistro boxes and all of that. And man, I cannot tell you how many Starbucks meals I had at that point in my life. But You know, I didn't, I'm not a big foodie person, so I didn't care. It wasn't that important to me. It meant that I freed up money that then could go towards things I actually did want to do. Yeah. I struggle a lot with the saying no thing. And I go back and forth a lot with that too. So to me, it's like, okay, I know I should say no to going out to dinner, or I know I should maybe not go on that trip that my friend asked me to go on. But at the same time, I'm like, but 
I also want experiences. I also value going out to dinner with that person. And that's going to add more value to my life than staying home on the couch just because I didn't want to spend the extra money. And that's where I find a hard time balancing. Do you have any tips on, I don't know, how to kind of jump over that hill? I think the first thing is to consider the activities that you're doing with said people. It's more often that we just want to spend time with our friends and less important what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So instead of going out to dinner and dropping $45 on a meal and drinks, is it possible that you go over to your friends, your friend comes over to your place and you split a bottle of wine and sit and chat? Totally. Now, do you want to do that every time? No. And maybe once a month you do go out to dinner and that's your thing. But I think it's more about everything in moderation, which is boring advice, but totally true. Yeah. And my also suggestion is whenever we're dealing with friendship and finances, one is just to be honest, but to not pass judgment on what your friend wants to do. Let's say a friend comes to you and says, hey, I want to go to a music festival in the Bahamas that's going to cost me $3,000. Do you want to come? And you say, Mm, not really, <laughs> but don't say, you know, oh, that sounds like a terrible waste of money. I just like, um, I appreciate you asking. I don't want to do that. However, maybe we can do X, Y, Z. Yeah. And not saying like, oh, what a waste of your money because yeah. you don't want to pass a judgment on your friend. But the other thing is most of the time, your friends do just want to spend time with you. And maybe it's you saying, oh, I don't want to go drop $50 on a bottomless brunch But instead, why don't we grab bagels and go for a walk or something like that? So you're still getting to spend that quality time together, Mm -hmm. but you just saved yourself 45 bucks. Right. Because that's what's important is the time. True. That's right. That's the value. I feel like me and you have had so many of these conversations, Liz, but then we don't stick to it. Right. Then we go out and get bottomless brunch. (laughs) Yeah. Like, we'll be like, you know what? We are going to buy the bottle of wine. This was our big thing. We're going to cook. We're going to do... We're going to cook at home. What was it? Potlucks. We were going to do potlucks. But they haven't happened yet. No. We just need to commit, you know? Well, I think the other part of this, though, is maybe the two of you value that part of a social setting and you see value in spending your money there. That's fine. But where are you scaling back so that you can do that? Yeah. Yeah. Such a good point. So we're kind of talking about, I feel like millennials in particular, which I know you write a lot about um, that particular age group, us technically, I guess we're all millennials. I know that our group tends to really value those experiences kind of over things, which changes up their consumer habits a little bit. How do you find that financial philosophies differ across generations? Um, Like how do millennials view finances differently than their parents or other generations? Or do you see kind of some more similarities there than people might think? There are certainly similarities. One of my favorite examples is there is a Fortune magazine article from the 70s that came out that basically talked about boomers the same way that millennials get spoken about today. Mm. And I think that the funny thing is, no matter the generation, when you hit your early 20s, there are going to be tropes written about you about you're lazy, you're narcissistic, you're trying to do things differently. You want what you want when you want it. Like, yep, that's going to be true of every generation in their early 20s. (laughs) That's just how it is. But in terms of finances specifically, I think there are two big things that are different for the millennial generation besides things like student loan debt burden. But it's that money's digital to us. 
Mm. We're really the first generation where all of us are experiencing currency as more of a digital thing than physical paper. We don't even write checks. I have to Google how to write a check <laughs> every time I have to write a check because I'm always nervous that I'm going to screw it up because I never write them. I yeah. get so even annoyed for- when I need a check. I'm like, and I, I can't don't have it. a check. I have to go to the bank. I have to order like three of them. And it's such an inconvenience to me. Right. And I think that part of the way this can be a problem, though, is that it almost becomes monopoly like money yeah. to a degree. And especially if you're coupling this digital currency with this notion of already having a massive debt burden, you kind of get into a what's a little bit more scenario. Yeah. And it becomes very easy to let that build up. But the other thing is that, like you said, what we value is different, but it's also things like we don't see buying a house as the end all be all. You have to have hit this by your early 30s or your financial mm-hmm. failure mm-hmm. factor. There are so many, I would say, benchmarks that existed for our parents' generation about what made you a successful person and a fully adjusted adult that we don't necessarily hold true anymore. And to me, home ownership is one of the biggies. Oh, yeah. I completely and it agree. doesn't make sense for everyone. And I get really annoyed with this rhetoric of like, oh, renting's just wasting your money. Like, you know Thank what? you for saying that. really expensive. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because I completely agree with that statement. And me and Liz both are renters. We both plan to rent for a while a while longer. And uh, my parents are very much, you are throwing away your money. And I'm like, but I don't think that I am. <laughs> a big part of it depends on where you live. Mm-hmm. I live in New York City. The idea of buying here oh in a gosh. safe neighborhood that I want to live in is absolutely untenable for me. Like That's not going to happen anytime soon mm-hmm. for starters. But it's also... That I like the idea of being flexible in where I can go in pursuing job opportunities. I don't really want to tie myself down to a one area for the next five to seven years in order to even start to see a return on my investment, which is unless you are somehow able to buy in Silicon Valley, it's pretty much the deal. Mm -hmm. And also the idea of putting down, you know, I don't have student loan debt, but my partner has student loan debt. Personally, I would rather get rid of that debt. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's Amen. that's more of a personal preference and risk tolerance. I hate debt. So I would rather have the money that would go towards being tied up in a mortgage and a down payment on a home towards aggressively paying down his debt if we get married. So that's another personal reason why not. And the last thing is... I don't have to fix what goes wrong in my apartment. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, people talk about homeownership like it's this like amazing investment and you're gonna get all these crazy returns. Well, first of all, it depends on the type of property you buy, depends on where you buy, depends how long you're going to be there. But things can go so absolutely wrong for you that you can sink so much money into homes, especially in the early years. Mm -hmm. For example, I live in an apartment. Our ceiling caved in a few months oh ago God. in the bathroom. Great. Whole bathroom ceiling just fell into the bathtub. I'm going to guess that it probably cost my landlord at least 10 grand to replace the pipe that had burst yeah. and fix the ceiling based on the labor and where we live and all of that. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money. That you and didn't so, have to yeah, pay. <laughs> that yeah. I didn't have to pay. You know, and so I also pay for the privilege of not having to deal Mm -hmm. with that stuff right now because, frankly, I'm in a phase of my life where I do not see value in that right now. Yeah. 
So you touched a little bit on how you find it so important just to get rid of debt. Like, let's do that first. And I personally have more debt now than I ever have. And it's just just the way that life has taken me um, a little bit more than I would like. And I always wonder, what's the best course of action here? Should you... I've read different things like save to a thousand and then put all of your money on your credit cards. Or how do you think people of our generation or anybody, I guess, should tackle debt? Would you feel motivated knowing that you're saving more money or would you feel motivated by getting a big win up top to keep going? What would make you feel better? I think saving more money for me. Saving more... What was the second question? What was the second part of that? You get a big win up top. Like pay... Like if you paid off a credit card right away, like a quick little win. Oh, I got you. Okay, um, a quick win. Absolutely. I would feel... Even thinking about it makes me feel lighter. Just to be like done, out of my life, gone. So you need to do the debt snowball. Yeah. Okay. Personal finance, especially with the the big gurus, they will talk about things as though everything is black and white. There are so many shades of gray in personal finance. But more importantly, the key word in personal finance is that first one, personal. It needs to be what is going to work for you. And one thing that frustrates me is that a lot of times you'll hear like, oh, you have to do debt avalanche. Debt avalanche will save you the most money. It only makes sense to do debt avalanche. Okay. But from what I just heard from you, what's going to motivate you is to get a win almost immediately because then you'll keep going. Because the thing is, if you just are mentally saying, just like, well, I guess I'm saving more money this way, but it's not motivating to you, then you're probably going to trip up. And you're Mm -hmm. going to continue to accrue debt. So what you want to do is the one that's going to actually help you get to that end goal of paying down the debt. And so for debt snowball, for those who are listening that aren't familiar with these terms, there's more than one way to pay down debt. But two of the biggies that everybody talks about is debt snowball and debt avalanche. Debt avalanche is the mathematically correct way to pay down debt. Mm -hmm. Because what you do is you take all of your debts, you write them from the highest interest rate to the lowest interest rate. Mm -hmm. You're not really paying attention to what the actual balance is. Mm -hmm. You're focusing more on the interest rates. And then also next to it, you want to put down your minimums due. And then what you do is, of course, you're always paying all the minimums across all your cards. But any extra money that you have gets tacked on to the minimum of your largest interest rate. So that first thing on your sheet of paper, you tack any extra money onto that payment and you just aggressively start to pay that down. Then once that's paid off, you take that sum, tack it on to number two, Mm -hmm. keep going, keep going. Of course, the important thing is always paying your minimums down the board Mm -hmm. because you never want to miss a payment. Now, Debt Snowball works in more of a reverse way where you write your list Same structure, but you write it from the smallest balance to the largest balance. We don't care so much about the interest rates. And then you just keep making those aggressive payments to your smallest balance first. So it goes away first. You get that quick win up top. You're going to feel really good about it. It's going to motivate you to keep going. And I describe that as the it makes my brain happy version Mm -hmm. of paying down debt. So some people are truly driven by debt avalanche because they're thinking, yeah, I'm saving the most money and Mm -hmm. that makes them feel good and that's great. But if that doesn't work for you, then don't try to go that route. Go the snowball route. And some people do a little bit of a hybrid and some people just keep paying their minimums due until the debt's gone without really having any sort of strategy in place. But if you want to aggressively get rid of debt, you have to have a system. Yeah, I think... I think like whatever is causing you the most 
sleepless nights, like that's what you need to go for. Like if you're going to feel better paying off your smallest card and getting it out of there, then do that. And then if you want to like, if it makes you feel better that you're saving money, then do that. Do you have a preference? Do you think one is better than the other? I do have a preference that you have at least $1,000 saved. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have any sort of savings, then what's going to happen is something will go wrong because Murphy's Law is going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to have to finance that on a credit card. So you're pretty much back In to the square same situation. one. Yep. Right. So I'd like you to have at least a thousand. I say if you're a single person with no dependents, a thousand. But if you have a kid or even pets, 1,500. Yeah. Now, what about as you're paying off your debt? Like, let's say you have your thousand saved, you're looking to do either avalanche or snowball, whatever floats your boat. In terms of the excess money that you have available, like should you keep contributing to savings and adding to that thousand? Or is it like get all that debt gone first and then focus on putting some additional back in savings? Part of it's risk tolerance. You might only feel good if you're still contributing to savings. Mm -hmm. I would prefer you be contributing to an employer-matched retirement account and at least getting your employer match. Right. And then everything extra is going towards debt if you've already got your savings where it needs to be. And that's also in a place that makes you feel comfortable. I think it's okay not to be aggressively saving if you've got that big debt burden Mm because it makes more sense to be paying down debt. And I've never totally understood how some people feel better to save up a big chunk and then throw all of it at their debt. Because to me, it makes more sense to be chipping away consistently as opposed to just trying to do bulk dumps onto your debt. And back to the previous question about which one I prefer. I honestly, at the end of the day, prefer Snowball because I've seen it be more effective for people. From a math perspective, I obviously like Avalanche, but money is not rational. The way we interact with money is purely based on our emotions, which is why, in my opinion, Snowball usually wins out. Mm Interesting. I wanted to touch on, um, you were saying about an employee, gosh, I can't even think of the right term. Yeah. Like a 401k. Yeah. And I'm a teacher. So I have STRS, which is the state retirement, whatever. Nina's got good retirement. Yeah. yeah. So my question is, it, it is okay to be putting all of your money into your employee retirement fund. And then you have your bank of 1000 or 1500. I guess I also feel the pressure of like, oh, I need to have 20,000 in my savings account. I need to have, like, I feel like there's this number that I need to have sitting in a savings account. Is that something that is needed? I don't even know how to ask these questions intelligently. Right. But if you're accruing a big effort and your balance sheet is still negative, so it doesn't really matter, does it? Right. That's so true. Yeah. That's yeah. So true. Well, what do you think about... um how finances contribute to our overall wellness. So if you're financially healthy, does that manifest in other areas of your life too that you've seen? I think that's a great question because there's all these studies that come out that are like people who are financially healthy tend to be mentally and physically healthier. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's true. I'm kind of calling BS on that. (laughs) Just because I know plenty of people that have a lot of money in the bank that are fat slobs who can't take (laughs) care of themselves and are depressed human beings for a variety of reasons. So I don't think it's all correlated, but I'll tell you what is correlated is that if you feel in control of your money and you are able to meet all of your basic needs and then have extra, that of course takes a huge mental burden off your plate. Like if you don't have to be thinking about paying rent or where your next meal is coming from, that puts you in such a great position. But 
being at $250,000 doesn't necessarily make you a whole lot better off just because I know people who make six figures live paycheck to paycheck. So it's really more about how you handle it, not about the amount that's coming in. And I don't really think a lot of it's that tied to physical health because I don't think all... I think willpower is not created equally. I'm a great example where I am great with my money, but if you put a piece of cake and ice cream in front (laughs) of me... Oh, Lord. Yikes. (laughs) So it's a very different type of scenario. And I, I understand why people draw those correlations all the time, but they're certainly not quite all the same. But I will say that having a grasp on your financial health certainly helps your mental health just in terms of not having to be stressed about covering what you need in life. Yeah. I was listening to Lori Harder's podcast the other day and it was about money and she went from like not having any money and then they made as a family like $200,000 a year. And then within like a year, they made it to a million dollars with their business. And a lot of it, like she was saying... Money doesn't make you happier, but it can amplify certain aspects of your life. It can amplify what already makes you happy. So having more money doesn't make you happy. But if you're happy in yourself, Mm -hmm. having money can make those things better. And so I was like, that makes a lot of sense. Like you need to be happy. You can do that with or without money. Of course, having it, you can do. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it is, I think it's more about the stress. You're so right. Like if you're worried about, making ends meet or paying for your bills, that's where it affects your health. It's the stress. Because you're in that flight or fight. Yeah. Fight or flight all the time. Mm -hmm. Once you can deploy it in ways that... I like that word, enhance. Enhance your happiness. And then also to be able to see it make a difference for other people. Because to be at a position where you can be giving your money away in meaningful ways is also another thing that is great for your mental health as well. Definitely. Well, what would you suggest to people? I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that struggle with high student loan balances. And I know you touched on it's kind of something unique to our generation, the state we find ourselves in with the massive amount of student loan debt out there. So how does that work into the mix? When we're talking about paying off debts, um, is there any way that student debt in particular is handled differently than say credit card debt, maybe more high interest debt like that? Sure. I think that you should focus on your high interest debt first in terms of prioritizing paying it down Mm -hmm. just because of how quickly it's accumulating. But to that point, you can certainly include your student loans into Avalanche or Snowball. And odds are in either scenario, they're probably going to be closer to the bottom because it's probably either going to be a lower interest rate in terms of Avalanche or a higher sum in terms of Snowball. So it's one of the ones that you eventually will get to. Mm Mm-hmm. Now you can bake them into these strategies, but in addition, I think it's very important that you understand all of the options open to you in terms of either refinancing or different federal programs. Now, all of this is now said with a caveat of if you are banking on forgiveness for your federal loans, keep an eye on the news right now and see what's going to actually happen with that. Yeah. Because there has certainly been a lot shaking out where forgiveness strategies maybe, or the forgiveness programs rather, perhaps aren't going to be enacted quite as they were expected to be. Mm -hmm. But that aside, forgiveness aside, the income-driven repayment plan is a really good way for somebody, particularly at the beginning of their career, who feels like, 
oh, I have $60,000 in student loan debt and I'm only making $50,000 as a teacher. I can't handle these monthly payments. They're too large and still be able to pay my rent, eat food, all of that. Mm -hmm. So what income-driven repayment does is it caps your monthly payment relative to your salary. So it's not reducing how much you have to pay in the long run. In fact, it's really increasing it because the interest is going to continue to accrue. But in the short term, it gives you some breathing room to be able to reallocate money to other things like living, but also if there's other debt that you're trying to pay down, you can have a little bit more freed up. But what the income-driven repayment programs do, and there's a variety of them, but all of them more or less, you make these payments for 20 to 25 years. And then at the end, any remainder will be forgiven. That's the current plan. Hmm. Now, the money that gets forgiven might be taxed. So that's mm. something to keep in mind. And you also have to reapply every year. You have to give them updated tax information because as your income goes up, so do the payments. So that's something to keep in mind. Interesting. Now, in addition, you have refinancing, which if you refinance a federal loan, you lose all opportunities to do any of the federal programs because you're turning a federal loan into a private loan. So if you think you're ever going to need income-driven repayment or forbearance or deferment, which is how you can kind of stop payment for a period of time and not get penalized by your servicer, but you have to apply and get approved. You can't just stop paying and be like, deferment. That's not how it works, right? <laughs> but uh, refinancing, the short version of it is you take out a new loan to pay off the old loan, which sounds horrifying to people that are already in debt. But the reason that you do this is, let's say you have a private loan, a private student loan at 7%. And these new guys, these refinance guys will say, okay, I see you have $20,000 at 7%. We'll give you $20,000 at 3.5%. And then you can pay off your 7% loan with the money we give you. And you just keep paying us, but at 3.5%. Mm -hmm. So you're saving time and money by reducing your interest rate just part of the strategy with refinancing. And then the other thing is, if you're in a position where you've got some savings, you're, you're not paying with crazy credit card debt, and you're contributing to your employer matching your 401k, and you've got a little extra, throw a little extra towards your student loan payment. Even paying $10 above your minimum due can shave up to a year off of your repayment time. Wow. Because every little bit above the minimum can go to your principal balance. Such good tips. Yeah. And that's something that so many of us are struggling oh my with gosh. right now. I'm, I'll be really interested to see in like 10, 20, 30, however many years, like how it changes our economy and the financial landscape. Like, I feel like oh, yeah. it's going to be interesting how it all pays out. Because I mean, I forget what the number is of what, how much outstanding student loan debt there is like nationally, but mm -hmm. it's ridiculous, like trillions of dollars. Yeah, it's in the trillions. Yeah. And people are defaulting, which is also a big part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, moving on to something near and dear to my heart, which is budgeting. <laughs> I will be... I'll be the first <laughs> to admit that I like can't do it at all. Like I've tried everything. Yeah. I've tried the envelope system. I've tried like my mom does this thing where she has like a notebook where every day she writes down like her different transactions. I've tried looking at online banking. Like I can't figure it out. So <laughs> is there a system that you love that you can recommend to us and our listeners? I do the no budget budget. Oh, that's, that's what I fun. call it. Mm. 
but I'm going to say you aren't allowed to try my style until you do two things. The first one is that for one week, I want you to do the thing your mom does. And I want you to track every penny for one week. And every time you make a purchase, I want you to write down how much was spent, but more importantly, what it was spent on. Starbucks. You can do this in notes on your phone. Because the thing that's important in this system or in this exercise is not how much was spent necessarily, but the what. Mm -hmm. Because what you then do at the end of that week is you go back and you look at everything that you spent on and you start to see if you can identify any patterns. Again, and you start to see if there's yes. (laughs) Exactly. And if there's anything that you're like, whoa, I'm spending way more money there than I thought. Mm -hmm. And I buy a latte almost every day. I am not condemning the latte, (laughs) but it's part of my budget. Right. So the bigger part of this exercise is just to see if there's something in there that you don't value that you're spending money on without thinking about it. Hmm. So it's a really good way to identify mindless spending. So once you do that, the other thing that's really good to, to try just to kind of reset your system is to do... I like to tell people to do it for a month, but even if you just do it for two weeks, doing the cash diet. But the way I want you to do it is to start by running your cash flow. So you sit down with, and I like to say actual pen and paper, even for us millennials, (laughs) you sit down at the top of the paper, you write down how much money you have coming in every month. And then underneath, write down all of your expenses, including what you're putting into savings. Just because I don't want you to be including your savings into the number we're going to get. So all of those expenses that you have, so your debt, your rent, utilities, cell phone bill, transportation, everything. Then tack on a $100 buffer because I promise you forgot something when you originally wrote this list. It happens every time. And then subtract your outflow from how much is coming in. And that remainder is how much you have to spend probably on non-discretionary things and probably groceries because you probably didn't include groceries necessarily in your expenses since it's a variable purchase. Mm -hmm. But that remaining chunk is what you have to spend in the month. So for argument's sake, let's say we got a really nice round number of $800 that you have to spend every month on like groceries and whatever else you want. You've already paid your expenses and put money into savings. So now let's divide that by four. Every week you have $200 that you can spend on groceries and then whatever else you feel like spending money on. Take it out in cash, put it in your wallet, and everything you buy has to be with said cash. And everyone will try to argue with me. They're going to be like, I always spend way more money when I'm spending in cash. Like, you don't spend more. You're noticing how much you're spending, right. which makes you realize how much you're spending. Yeah, I notice whenever I have cash, I actually get stressed about spending it. So when I waitressed, I always had cash on me and I think I spent less because I could physically see it. It's a psychological it. thing. Yeah, and it's I would shown. be like, oh gosh, I just... because And I also would earn that money that night. So if I made 60 bucks in cash that night, it would be so hard for me to like use that $60 to pay for things because I had just worked for it that mm-hmm. night. But now that everything, like you said, is electronically, I can't see it. All of my pay- paychecks go in. It's all my debit card. I swipe, swipe, swipe. And then at the end, I'm like, what? Oh my gosh, I did not realize I spent that much this week. You know, it's just, I completely feel I need to do the cash thing again. Yeah, the cash diet is, I call it the juice cleanse of your finances. It's just <laughs> yeah. such a good way to reset. And it really helps you notice where you're spending your money. And like you said, it's very different when you have that tactile experience of handing over Andrew Jackson and his mean mug yes. is staring at you. <laughs> you're like, oh, maybe I don't want to buy this thing. from AJ. Yep. Right. Yep. So with those two things laid out, Mm -hmm. 
the no budget budget. What I do is I run my cash flow. And now that I'm a freelancer, it's a little bit differently. It works a little differently because I have variable income. So I might eventually migrate over to like the zero sum budget style. But what I do is I run my cash flow. And then that amount that I have left, I don't regulate it in the sense of like the envelope system or percent budgeting system where I say like, this much goes to groceries, this much goes to whatever. Like I don't think of it that way. I just think, Yep, I have this much left to spend. Mm-hmm. I can spend it how I want to spend it. But in order to keep track of that, I have a money meeting with myself every Sunday for 15 minutes. I check in on my bank accounts and then I check in on all of my credit cards and make sure I know exactly how much I have spent to date so that I'm not overspending. And a lot of times, first two weeks of the month, I will pay off my credit cards on that Sunday so that mm-hmm. my checking account accurately reflects what I actually have left to spend. Such a good idea. That sounds like just my dream life if that were how I were operating all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's you like can. a utopia. I know. If I just I feel like this this money cleanse is it for me. Yeah. I gotta I gotta try it. It sounds like such a good idea. I have a question really quick on um the entrepreneur thing. So my husband is an entrepreneur and I never had to deal with money that was not structured, the same amount coming in every two weeks. Do you have advice on how you structure not knowing exactly how much is coming in or when it's going to be coming in? Because again, it varies depending on clients and if you lose one or if you gain some. And I would love to hear some advice on how I can structure that a little bit with him. I always recommend that freelancers have a slightly more healthy emergency savings fund because Mm -hmm. your income is variable. So this might be money that you're going to have to tap for non-emergencies. So I like the idea of a freelancer having ultimately six to nine months of savings Mm -hmm. in the bank. Now, if you're paying down debt, it's a slightly different scenario, of course. And if you're a freelancer paying down debt, you might want to have more like two to $3,000 saved just in Mm -hmm. case. But what I do personally, I have my business expenses separate from... Or my business banking account separate from my personal Mm -hmm. for one. But also... First thing I do is I save 40% of every paycheck that comes in, which to people sounds absolutely insane. (laughs) But that money is not being taxed yet. So I have to be saving for my taxes first. Yeah, Yeah. And the reason I do 40, a lot of people recommend 30. The reason I personally do 40 is because when I live in New York City, so I'm paying federal, state, and city tax. So I pay more than the average taxpayer. But the other part is that because by putting 40% away... It's sort of a forced retirement savings for me because whatever's left over at the end, I dump into an IRA. So that's just a way that I'm saving for retirement while being a freelancer. Hmm. But in terms of my month-to-month budget, the reason a lot of people recommend the zero-sum budget for freelancers is because you're living off of last month's income. So what you would be spending in the month of May is what you earned in the month of April. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you aren't borrowing from your future paychecks. You're focused on your last month's paycheck. And the one thing that I do that also makes me feel better is I always have two months worth of my living expenses. So my rent, my health coverage, and um, my cell phone bill and utilities. I Because ha- I know how much that's going to be within mm-hmm. you know 50 bucks for utilities. But I always have that saved in a... I have a checking account specifically just for my bills. So I always have two months worth of that in that account. So mm. it just makes me mentally feel better. Yeah. Some good advice. Yeah. Love to, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cody, we got an episode for you to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, speaking on that kind of, um, you have in your book and on your website, this idea of getting financially naked with your partner. Um, so can you explain that process to us, like what that looks like for people and why it's so important and why people should do it? Yes. So the process is, it's a fun way to say talking money with your partner <laughs> is getting financially naked. And the first step in getting financially naked is to keep the judgment out of it. Mm. Because what's going to happen if you get physically naked in front of another human and that person laughs at you or makes a snide comment or scoffs or has a shocked face of horror, (laughs) you're probably not going to get naked in front of that person ever again. (laughs) Probably not. Yeah. (laughs) So same thing with your money. If you're entering Mm. a very vulnerable and intimate conversation about something that people really tie a lot of judgment and emotion into, then you need to come in with a really good poker face. And you need to not react poorly if your partner admits something that makes you think, ooh. So made that I've made that mistake so many (laughs) times. Yeah, because we have very different views on money. We just always have. And so, and a lot of it, Cody will say, I make him feel bad about things. And Mm -hmm. I've broken the naked rule. I feel bad now. <laughs> now that you've tied it to like, would you want to like get naked in front of that person? Like it makes so much more sense. That analogy really helped me understand why he feels so hurt about me sometimes talking to him about money. And it can be hard to recoup that trust. I think yes, that's the other big thing and, and why it's so important. So once you have mastered your poker face, <laughs> I like to counsel people to, instead of you know getting aggressive up the top and be like, how much debt do you have? That's not like the greatest way to open this conversation. <laughs> I like instead to start small with something like, what are your savings goals? Or in five years, what's something you'd want to achieve financially? Or what does retirement look like for you? Anything like that, that it's not so much tied up in a judgment of the person or of their past behaviors. And rather, you can kind of create a common language around the future. And it's just easier to talk about stuff like that. It's more of a positive You don't have to have all of these conversations in one night. It can also be a progression. But the next step is then to say something like, okay, so now that you know that you want to have enough to, you know, go on a trip backpacking through Asia in the next two years, and you've decided that's going to cost you $20,000, what is it that is standing in the way of you achieving that goal? That can kind of be Mm -hmm. a tactful Mm -hmm. way to say, how much debt do you have? And so, you can be more blunt. It's part part of it is, of course, knowing your partner. And maybe your partner is receptive to you being slightly more blunt and you don't have to have so many questions cloaked in. Oh, let's spin it as a positive. But eventually you need to get to the information like how much debt do you have and what's your relationship to money? Are you a spender or are you a saver? Because if you're both spenders, that's knowledge that you need to have about each other mm-hmm. and figure out how to kind of set up baby gates around your lifestyles to ensure that you still can achieve your financial goals. What do you do when you're different? Yeah, it's and that's a tough call. And a lot of times we are different than our partners mm-hmm. and we have different relationships to money than our partners. And I think having those conversations and finding something that works for the two of you together is what's important. And what worked for your parents is probably not what's going to work for the two of you. Yeah, totally. So you as a couple need to come up with what your action plan is going to be moving forward. And whether that's how you're going to save, how you're going to pay down debt, how you're going to budget, but it needs to be something that works for both of you. It can't just be one person saying, this is the way we're going to do it because you're not going to get your partner on board to stay on track if you're just completely dominating the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, that's hard because I'm like a take charge person with Same our with money. Yeah. I love, as much as I hate budgeting, paying bills is like therapeutic and I agree. wonderful for me. I'm right with you. And I love being in charge of it. And I, I just don't do. let Zach... So he never... I'm really bad about being like, oh, you know, this is actually how much money we have to spend because I have like XYZ bill going out. I just like immediately go pay bills and get on this high and love that I've just like Got knocked it all out done. all of my commitments yes. for a month. Yeah. I think and also for like Cody, he's like, take it. I don't want to look at it, you know? And that's okay because that's our balance. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes um, I don't relay as much as I should just because it's all up in my head, you know? And your partner needs to know what the deal is for a couple of reasons. One, and I mean, I'm with both of you in that I am (laughs) clearly the one that's very (laughs) interested in money. It's literally my job. (laughs) But I'm also very careful to be aware of his wants and needs around money to make sure that I am listening and interpreting what he wants. And I'm not just completely dominating it because it's going to be harder for him to reach financial goals and be motivated if it's just like, eh, she'll take care of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, but the other reason it's important, especially if you're married, your partner needs to know all of the information because if something happens to you, your partner needs to know all yeah. of those details. And that's something that people never really want to talk about. Mm-hmm. But especially if you don't have a will, because I see that with a lot of young couples. God, if something happens and your partner doesn't know how to get into the bank accounts, what bills are getting yeah. paid, what your insurance information is, how to get into the investments, that is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. I've thought about I hate thinking about it, but mm-hmm. I've thought about it. And Zach and I, like, I tell him all the time, I'm like, we need to get a will because we don't have one. I'm like, we really need to get a will. Yeah, we don't either. And then I look at him and I'm just like, just, you can have everything. <laughs> that's that's my <laughs> will so far. It's just being like, it's all yours, Zach. Just take care of it. You get it all. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think a verbal agreement true, is um, <laughs> the best way to handle that. <laughs> there's two things you can do though. Well, three actually. If you have a retirement plan, 401k, investments and bank accounts, you need to have him as your beneficiary on your 401k. And this is all really easy to do. All you have to do is usually log in and go to your profile setting. And there's usually something about beneficiaries. If you can't figure it out, just call up your (laughs) plan provider. So do that. On your banking accounts, you can do something called a pod, a payable on death. The exact same thing. You can usually just search the term POD or POD in your bank information. You can call up your bank representative, put them on that. And then same with your investments. You want a TOD, transfer on death, Mm. T-O-D. And you have his name. So you need like his name, his address, and a social security number and birthday. And that way, if something does legitimately happen to you, that all your financial institutions have that information on file. So even if Heaven forbid there's no will, at least that's been outlined. And fun fact, beneficiaries on your financial accounts trump a will. Oh, interesting. So if you have a will that says everything goes to my sister, but you die and your beneficiary says everything goes to my (laughs) ex-boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend gets it. Win for the ex-boyfriend, I guess. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) never knew that. I'm gonna go change. 
my stuff, like pronto. I need to do that as as well. Um, Me and Cody need to have a conversation after this podcast. It's like inspiring me to get aligned and like get our finances in order. Actually, it's funny. Before we started this, I was like, Cody, can we look? This is his least favorite question. And I ask it every day. (laughs) I'm like, Cody, can we look at the budget today? And he's like, hates me for it. But now I really want to look at the budget today. So we are really all about healthy habits here on The Wine and Shine. And what is one simple habit that our listeners can just take into their life or their daily routines tomorrow to get their finances on track? The first one really is knowing your cash flow. I harp on this all the time. You have to know how much money is coming in and how much money is going out intimately before you can really make an action plan. And whether that's savings goals or debt repayment or investing, you have to know your overall financial picture first before you can really make a good plan about where to go to next. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Well, to end, I have two pieces of advice I'd like you... Well, actually, almost end because I have another question after <laughs> this. I just can't stop asking questions. Um, what is the best thing someone can do for their finances? Which may be what you just said. I don't know. And what is the worst thing they can do for their finances? Dun, dun, dun. Well, yes. Knowing your cash flow is one of the best ones at living below your means is another way to kind of spin that. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I think the best thing you can do for your money is to figure out how and why you relate to money and identify your values. Because if you can kind of understand what triggers you to spend or to save or anything like that, if you can understand why psychologically you are interacting with money the way you do, it can give you control and help you reframe, especially if it's a negative situation. But then if you couple that with knowing what you specifically value, and what I mean by that is you not what your friends value or your family values Mm -hmm. or what the media is telling you to value. And if you can spend your money aligned with those values, you are always going to feel like you have enough. That's wonderful. Really great Assuming that you have enough to meet your basic needs. Do you mind explaining a little bit about what it means to live below your means? I know that we all know, yes, we're not going to be spending as much. And yes, we're not going to buy things that we can't afford. But really to you, what does that mean? A lot of times we talk about living... Below your means and above your means. And below your means is referring to the money that's coming in every single month. Not every penny is accounted for because your debt burden is not so high that everything's going to debt Mm. and you're able to save some Mm -hmm. and meet all of your basic needs and have some extra. So if you're living below your means, you have extra money that's going into savings, that's helping you meet other goals, you've paid off your debt. But if you're living above your means, You're in that paycheck to paycheck cycle. You have to get paid or things are going to go sideways. Yeah. And you're probably deeply into debt Mm -hmm. in probably consumer debt more so. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that we never really discuss so much is living at your means, Mm -hmm. which is being in that paycheck to paycheck cycle where everything feels like it's fine. But then if you lose your job and you're out of work for a month, that could all get upended. Yeah. And that is a very dangerous part of this cycle is that a lot of times people think like, oh, keeping up with the Joneses, living above your mean. But I'm like, there's a lot of people that are living at their means too. When you yeah. said that, I, I was really like, that's so many of us. Mm-hmm. So many of us right now are living at our means. If I lost my job, I would be in trouble. A yeah. lot of trouble. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I'd love to be able to get at the under mm-hmm. scenario. Like that's my dream. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So now to my last question, because I got really excited and ahead of myself. I'd like to talk about your book. So tell our listeners about this just came out on early this May, earlier this month in May. It's Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. What can our listeners expect from the book and where can they find it? Well, first you can find it pretty much wherever books are sold, both in stores and online. So the biggies, of course, are like Amazon, Barnes Noble, Books A Million, Powell's. And in terms of what to expect from it, it is a book that no matter where you are in your financial life, you can pick it up and learn something. And my joke is you could take it to the bathroom and learn something because <laughs> every chapter is written to stand on its own. You do not have to read this book cover to cover. In fact, throughout the book, I do encourage you to jump around based on specific scenarios hmm. because your personal finance journey is personal. So I'm wanting you to be able to customize your roadmap by yourself. And I allow you to do that in this book. And it touches on everything from beginner 101 basics in terms of understanding your credit score, how to build a budget, how to use a credit card, how to pay down debt, all of those type of topics gets into some of the more millennial specific things like how to handle student loans. But then I also get into stuff like how to negotiate, how to talk to your partner about money, getting financially naked, what happens when you can't split dinner bill evenly and talking to finances, talking about finances with friends. And then it even gets more into the nitty gritty like investing, how to hire a financial planner, mm -hmm. how to save for retirement and buying a house. Wow. So good. So much helpful stuff yes. that all of us need to know. Awesome. So it covers the arc. That's yeah. the goal. From you the have... beginning, like you're just out of college to I'm a homeowner. Yeah. Right. And that's a long, different journey for everyone. Right. So something for everybody in the book. I love that. You also have on your blog, which is brokemillennial.com, you have a get your financial life together worksheet. So what does that help us do? Well, I don't want to give it okay. all away. Yeah. Oh, you can tease it. it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is five very easy, actionable tips for what you can be doing from the moment you download it within the next couple of hours to put yourself in a better financial position. Sold. I'm doing it now. I, I love got it. it up. Mm -hmm. I got it up. Yeah, she <laughs> does. It's up right now. Excellent. We're looking at it. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with... I mean... Uh, we've wanted to talk about this for a while because actually Nina and I started the podcast based on conversations we were having with each other really regularly and money came up all the time. We still talk about money a lot. And yeah. I think like when you find somebody that you feel comfortable just being honest about with your situation, like I know your whole situation, mm -hmm. you know my whole situation. It's like we talk about this so much and we're like, we need somebody... We need an expert to give us some advice on these topics we just discuss on the daily. And especially since there aren't, like we talked about in the beginning, it is a taboo subject. Mm -hmm. Someone may not have a person they can go to to like bounce ideas off of or, you know, just even vent about their situation or or even know their resources to get help. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, definitely I hope our listeners buy your book. Yes. I'm going to buy your book. <laughs> um, I just, Excellent. I think this was a really good value add for our listener base. Yeah, thank you so the much. The last plug. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. But the last plug I will make for the book, mm -hmm. two things. One, one of the chapters is about how to pick the best financial products for you. And I make the very bold claim in the beginning of that chapter is that you're about to earn your money back that you spent on the book. Mm. So that's thing one. I bet you I can get you at least $15 richer by the time <laughs> you finish reading the book. Perfect. And the other thing 
is that anybody who is listening right now who goes and buys the book, if you send a proof of purchase to info, I-N-F-O, at brokemillennial.com with wine and shine in the subject line, I will send you a free bonus chapter that's not in the book. Amazing. I love that. We love doing giveaways and things on the podcast. So that is so awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, awesome. Well, have a good one. And we'll talk to you soon. Great, you too. All right, bye. bye. All right, everyone. We hope you really enjoyed that episode with Aaron Lowry. I know that I got some amazing financial tips at the end. And it seriously has got me kind of jazzed to go downstairs right now pull out my computer. Cody, you're going to hate me, but we're going to hit the budget. <laughs> I Definitely. Like there are things I'm ready to get the numbers crunched, mm-hmm. which is the nerdiest, most horrible thing I've ever said, but it's, it's true. Mm-hmm. If you want to get Aaron's book, Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. You can find that at any major book retailer. You can also find it online. Also, her blog has a lot of really great resources. She's got that five steps to get your financial life together worksheet you can fill out, as well as really great articles and other things she's written elsewhere. She's been featured on Forbes, CNBC, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal. She really is a wealth of information. And you can go to her website, brokemillennial.com to learn more. Also, feel free to follow her on Instagram at Broke Millennial Blog. She's on Facebook as well. And as always, if you've enjoyed the episode, make sure to share it with a friend that might find it useful and find us on Instagram. Subscribe to us on iTunes. We would really appreciate any feedback and support that you're willing to give. Definitely. So until next time, keep shining, y'all. We'll catch you later. 